while I was there, I actually played around and I heard a lot about it. it's a cool thing to have these half-half images because a lot of picture, people get the impression that, or myself included, that you connect the real world that we are living in with the underwater world that only a few uh, people on the planet actually can enjoy. So this picture is, is in many ways uh, very special, so it brings even fisher anglers to a level that they will see on the same level a fish that they are actually going to catch with a fly fishing rod or just with lures. So that was the intention to bring it to the broader audience. Welcome to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast, featuring interviews with passionate people within the fly fishing industry. We focus on guides, conservation, resort managers, gear, and talented fly tires bringing usable information to fly fishers. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by The Fly Crate. Welcome to this edition of the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Uh, Want to let you know that uh, the podcast is brought to you by the folks at the Fly Crate. Since 2015, the Fly Crate has taught thousands of anglers world-class fly fishing techniques and provide unique fly fishing flies, gear, and tackle. The Fly Crate is an American-owned company committed to helping USA veterans, dedicating 2% of sales to Project Healing Waters. And uh, something we're going to start on the program is... Name the three cities that we get the most downloads from in this week. And happy to say thanks to these folks uh, for, for tuning into the podcast in Northeastern Massachusetts, Gig Harbor, Washington, and Arlington, Texas, our uh, biggest downloads this time around. I want to welcome to the podcast tonight, Biet J. Corner. Now, Biet is a cinematographer, photographer, diver, used to own a lodge in the Yukon uh, had dog mushing going on up there, um, a fishing lodge in the uh, Tagish Wilderness area. Viet, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to that. Well, I know something I know about you is, well, let me, let me just say this quickly. I have this photo on my wall that I bought off you a few years ago and is one of the best um, photographs that I've seen uh, of, of a salmon and we'll talk about that but I know you have a lot of passion for the outdoors a lot of passion for the water and, and for photography so um, Biat where does that all come from like where where did your passion for for all things H2O come from? Um, good question uh, it all pretty much started when I was about in my teens because my older brother he was already in photography so he was in many ways my mentor so he started snorkeling then i took off snorkeling he stopped it so i brought it to the professional level of dive master and dive control specialist and then he started uh, uh, basically just uh, educate me a little bit more about uh, dslr cameras and mirrorless cameras and he was an excellent he's actually an excellent mentor for his way he's more like a landscaping and abstract photography while i uh, took it to the next level as part of my adventurous life uh, took a lot of pictures of the wildlife while we were living up in the yukon so mm -hmm. it was a good countryside for for grizzlies and moose caribou all these very rare uh, animals so it was a good challenge and that brought me basically as a animal photographer into underwater photography, which 
Uh, it just happened about 10 years ago when I got recertified. Tell me a little bit about that Adams River picture that you're, I know you're very well known for. Um, you're, explain, the, first off, maybe tell the folks about the Adams River sockeye run if they don't know about it and, and kind of the, the situation you found yourself in on that trip. Uh, well, since the Adams River is only about a two and a half hours drive from where I live here in Yokanagan, I heard about that Adams River run through a friend who's also uh, a cameraman from Vancouver. And he uh, said, well, I should check it out. And I heard that in 2010 was another big run of, let's we talk about millions of the red orange sockeye salmon. So that was a good opportunity just to knock on the doors of uh, BC Parks. And they did grant me a permit to go into the water of the otherwise restricted uh, nesting grounds of these uh, remarkable, colorful salmon. So it, it was kind of like a beginning of uh, shooting half-half pictures. I mean, the camera dome is kind of like a, a dome-shaped uh, device that I can use for half underwater, half topside images. Mm -hmm. So while while I was there, I actually played around and I heard a lot about it. it's a cool thing to have these half-half images because a lot of picture, people get the impression that, or myself included, that you connect the real world that we are living in with the underwater world that only a few uh, people on the planet actually can enjoy. So this picture... Is, is in many ways uh, very special. So it brings even fisher anglers to a level that they will see on the same level a fish that uh, they are actually going to uh, catch with a fly fishing rod or just with lures. So that was the intention to bring it to the broader audience. Well, you did a great job of that because everybody that comes in my house sees that picture, wants it. Uh, and so... Um, I'll just explain the picture. So basically it's a sockeye salmon. I believe it's a male uh, up front and a female kind of behind, but it's half out yep. of the water. So you're getting, as Biet, as you said, you're getting that kind of fisheye view, a real a lot of definition on the salmon, but then you can actually see the trees and, and everything in behind. And if somebody wants to check that out, where can they go to online to have a look at it? Um, I have a few platforms. Uh, one is on Instagram. And uh, you'll find that with uh, BJK underline photo with a PH and video, just one word, or on Flickr the same way. That's uh, BJK photo video. That's pretty much like the. Mm -hmm. You can look at them. Uh, you cannot download the images, but if you want to download a, a picture with a good resolution, it's on my personal website, also BJKphotovideo.com. Uh, I was looking at your uh, the video. I assume it's the same time you um, had some underwater footage on Vimeo of the Adams River sockeye run, and it was pretty neat to watch those fish move. What what was it like to be down there as a diver? Well, particularly you're you're not really a diver. All I was wearing was basically a wetsuit and a very heavy weight belt because the currents in the Adams River can be swift. So you want to focus on taking good pictures, not kind of looking like a, a floating uh, neoprene uh, device going down the river uh, to the amusement of everybody on the shore. <laughs> so 
I, 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 was, I was wearing obviously some uh, diving goggles and snorkels so I could focus on the viewfinder of the camera. And, you know, it's, uh, it's quite challenging to deal with fish underwater. Uh, they never stand still. It's almost like herding kittens. So, and particularly uh, male salmon, they are very protective against their females. So whenever something really big comes into the water, there could be a threat for them. So they usually back off. So you have to find the trust by staying put for sometime 20 minutes in the same spot. So they will come back and they start to, uh, sometime you're lucky enough, they will start to uh, dig a red where the female will lay their eggs. And once they do that, they're becoming very uh, personal with you as long as you don't do any fast uh, movements. Mm -hmm. And that's when I get these shots like you mentioned you're having on the wall. So you're basically you're, you're developing a little bit of trust there before you can, can really zoom in. That's that's the case. And, uh, you know, that's uh, I did the Adams River salmon run in 2010, then 14 again and 18. So every fourth year, that's when the big run comes in. Right. And um, I'm really fortunate that the BC Park always without hesitation grants me a permit to go into the waters. And as a return, I give them some free copies uh, for internal use of the best pictures I took and the videos as well. That's very important for them for research on mm -hmm. on a private level. Absolutely, because it's not a look that everybody gets. And, uh, I mean, I've been to that run probably six or eight times over the years. We used to we used to actually, you know what we used to do, Beat, is we used to fish the mouth of that river for for, for trout when when the salmon <laughs> were doing their thing. And I'll tell you what, it was uh, it was a lot of fun, but it gets kind of busy yeah. up there. But uh, the, it's good to see that run still going strong. And uh, like you said, every fourth year I know is a big one. I, I want to switch gears and talk about another pick of yours that I know is getting some attention online. And that's, um, I don't even know, you're going to have to dial me in on where this was taken. But the one I'm referring to is of the sea turtle and the seal. Uh, you got to yeah. tell us about this. Well, that's, uh, it's about this time of year. Uh, it was actually on December the 24th. Uh, around five years ago, I did shore diving in uh, Maui, and it's uh, one of what they call now the hotspot of all the uh, marine conservation uh, by uh, Sylvia Earle, one of the well-known uh, marine biologists. And it's a very shallow reef, so the entry for snorkels and divers is very easy, and it's known for seahorses. And uh, green turtles, which are very unique uh, to Hawaii. And the monk seals are one of the uh, last few remaining monk seals on the planet. There's a Mediterranean monk seal population and there is the Hawaiian monk seal population. They're usually because it's a very flat, sandy beach. That's where these uh, uh, monk seals hang out. Just kind of a chill, uh, kind of warm up from a chilling dive. Mm -hmm. And what I learned because I found a tag on the flippers of that uh, monk seal on my files, so I reported it to Noah, and they, they gave me the whole story about that girl. She's a three-year-old female monk seal, so not uh, sexually mature enough to have a, a mating partner. So she just kind of hung around and harassed that uh, poor 
but oversized green turtle because uh, <laughs> by nature, actually, these monk seals, when they are smaller, they can consume a smaller uh, sea turtle. Okay. So they, it's actually a predatory monk seal. They're not feeding on on seagrass or they, 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 hunt, they hunt fishes and also smaller turtle. And I happen to be there with another dive buddy. So this is not Photoshop. This is actually happening. They interacted for maybe 20, 30 minutes. And um, as I approached them to take pictures, I realized that the uh, green turtle had some green fish line wrapped around its front flippers and through its beak. So its uh, behavior was a little bit abnormal. So that probably could have attracted the monk seal to investigate. Hmm. And so long story short, uh, once the monk seal lost the interest on the turtle, uh, the turtle just went under a, large, uh, a ledge of coral and we happened to cut these fish lines without diving knives, without touching the turtle, which is actually illegal in Hawaii. And uh, so uh, happy ending for, for both of them. And I, I happened to be there at the right time. And that image that you're referring to uh, on Instagram hit over half a million likes over the course of two years now. So I'm very proud about that. Wow. So you should be. That's amazing. And, and the, the actual shot that really made it was the the seal hanging on to the kind of the back of the turtle and, and hitching a free ride. I thought it was just a great shot. Never seen anything quite like it. Yeah. It has also kind of like a sentimental value because, uh, I mean, some people say, well, that's heavily Photoshopped and, uh, well, I'll leave that somewhere in the space, but actually, you know, it's, uh, for sensitive people are about marine life, what's going on in the ocean. That's a kind of like a positive, gathering between two species that are not related to each other. It's not like another fish is hanging around with another species of fish. It's a marine reptile, mm -hmm. uh, the turtle with a marine mammal. So this is very unique. And um, I happen to capture that in a series of uh, very rare uh, compositions. So th this has also a sentimental value to attract a lot of people who want to contribute to the problems that we all face uh, with uh, all uh, overfishing and sometime a little bit of uh, uh, a, a spa uh, the space between human beings getting a little bit too tight. So it's good mm -hmm. to see somebody in the ocean still getting along with each other. And that's what I could capture in that picture. That's good stuff. Yeah, it's, a, it's an amazing picture for sure. Now, Thank la you. last week, Biet, I actually asked our audience if they had any questions for you. Something I'm trying to do is be a little more interactive on the on the podcast. And I have some questions that were, uh, were emailed to me. Um, is there something that you've always wanted to capture on film that maybe you haven't yet? Uh, there's many things uh, that, that will take me hours to describe that. But yes, I have a... Uh, a brief list of of animals or um, 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 animal behaviors that I was always looking for. And one that I could always have a good chance to see in Hawaii would be diving and filming uh, tiger sharks mm. and whale sharks. So those are very massive. One is predatory. Tiger sharks are the most abundant uh, sharks around the waters of Maui because of that sea turtle as well they're feeding on them as well as whale sharks those are occasional um, 
travels, they just follow the spawning of sea urchins and uh, corals. So that's what they're feeding on. Hmm. Those are massive. They're almost sometimes the size of a, a good-sized school bus. So if you see a shark, which is known to the general public as a predatory fish, it's actually swimming around you in a size that you cannot imagine that they only feed on little plankton and tiny little krill. Hmm. So those are the two major. I'm, I'm much into shark conservation and, and shark uh, recording. So I just came back from Belize for two weeks trip and we saw tons of healthy reef shark populations and and nurse sharks as well and i was pretty much in heaven uh so well i'm actually still want to see a great white shark one day maybe preferably start starting in the beginning behind uh, a cage but i've been told it's actually better if you're outside of the cage then you can interact <laughs> easier with the camera so uh, but i don't know if i have the uh adrenaline level to deal with that what here's another question from from a listener what what are the the biggest threats in your mind to sea life and what can we do to help uh well sea lives i never see them as a threat uh basically encounters with sharks are usually misunderstandings and uh as a human being because we are entering a foreign element mm -hmm. we have not we're not used to interact with the behaviors of all the marine life so we still you uh, think as a human being and we become very uh judgmental when it comes that a shark with so many teeth in their mouths are a threat to us i mean they need the teeth to obviously catch fish and they don't have a shopping mall they, they can go and buy food and stuff like that so they pretty much have to eat and like lions do in our world and I don't never seen any animals as a a threat to us uh, in that in that way. Uh, basically, the only thing that sometimes is a little bit sneaky are jellyfish because they have a pretty much translucent body but very high toxin stinging. So I had that experience a couple of times in New Zealand as well as along the BC coast. So. Yeah, like I said, it's uh, nothing in the water. If I don't want to see things in the water, I don't simply don't go into the water. That's my philosophy. One listener emailed me a question, Biet, for you. Uh, his name is Alan Coop, and Alan says he's really enjoying the podcast. Keep it coming. He says, I have a question uh, for Biet about photography. He says he usually fishes alone. He loves his Samsung Galaxy S9 Plus for photos of fish that he catches and underwater release shots. Uh, the question that Alan has is, do you have any recommendations for fish shots taken by one person? Okay. Uh, well, I'm not quite familiar about what the, uh, what the Galaxy S9 can do if it's set up for what I called a, uh, a time lapse. Mm -hmm. I'm shooting maybe uh, every three or four seconds, consecutive seconds, uh, images that uh, I don't know, but uh, what I usually do when I want to be in my own pictures underwater, uh, I set up a tripod uh, directing into the spot where I want to take myself with a bunch of fishes or a coral head. So in his case, he's probably good to set up his tripod close to the water uh, edge 
so facing away from the sun so that the sun should be behind the camera mm-hmm. and then set his camera on uh, self selfie mode so he actually can see what kind of frame he's taking the fish and i i I understand. I remember when we are up in the Yukon holding a fish against the camera. It's uh, very difficult to multitask at the same time where you have that slippery fish in your hand, particularly when it's still alive. So uh, I personally would set up the camera that you're comfortable with, with what's in the frame. If there's some water uh, where you're standing in away from the sun and then holding the fish and you set up the, the shooting mode in, let's say, time-lapse uh, with taking picture every third second. So that gives you probably 20 frames per minute. That gives you enough time to hold the fish in multiple directions, uh, closer to the camera, further away, including yourself. So that's my recommendation. Then he has probably at least three, four good shots out of 20, and he can redo it before he... Uh, wants to release the uh, the fish back into the water if if that's what he intends to do. Yeah, you know what? Be, be at that spot on because the next thing he said is, I release all my fish. I don't want to take the extra time with the fish. So would you recommend okay. a tripod, which is exactly what you're, what you're saying. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. The, the other option would be a selfie stick. But once you're holding a fish of maybe uh, a, a bigger size, you need both hands to to keep that fish comfortably and uh, you don't have the extra hand to uh, play around with a selfie stick. So a tripod with that uh, time-lapse setting, like I said, anywhere between two to three seconds apart, and then just have it uh, until he has the hand free, release the fish, he can stop the uh, the time-lapse mode and go through the pictures and find the one that he find would suit his needs. So that's pretty much my recommendation on in that under these circumstances. I love I love what you're saying though. These places that you're 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 headed to and doing this uh, diving, Belize, um, uh, Hawaii. I mean, New Zealand. You're talking and BC's coast. You're talking some beautiful, beautiful water. Do you remember Viet your yeah. very first diving experience? Where was it? And and maybe walk us through that. Okay. Um, well, I had two segments of certification. I was about 17 when I got certified in 1973 back in Switzerland. So um, uh, back then, a 17-year-old, you don't have money to travel far. So actually, my then dive buddies took me to an island in the Mediterranean called Sardinia, which is a beautiful island with blue water, uh, crystal clear water. And I was in heaven because uh, all these kind of uh, quarry puddles in Switzerland, they were just murky. Visibility was almost zero. I couldn't see my dive bodies and then you end up going into uh, the Mediterranean Ocean with visibilities of 100 to 150 feet. You could see uh, schools of fishes, snappers and trevallis from a distance. So that uh, was my very first dive experience, which I still carry in my memories. That's where it all started. That's awesome. I know yeah. you're so passionate about about the environment, about I mean not just not just water, but I know that you're a big time conservationist, and um, I, I have a lot of respect for the um, I, I don't know how to quite verbalize it, but the uh, the way you live your life, you you follow through on what you say you're doing and and how you want things to be, and so I think I think that shows, and I, I love chatting with people that are really passionate about things, and 
there's so much to see in in the water. I have a feeling, Biet, that if I got into the diving, I probably it would be another place I'd just kind of spend a lot of time. Yeah, well, like I said, uh, I, I we we ran a wilderness lodge in the Yukon, so conservation of the local uh, fish species was all already part of my business because, mm-hmm. uh, like a hunting outfit, they they are not hunting every bear every moves to the last one to make money they are conserving their hunting grounds so they have repetitive customers and they will particularly here in canada north america they are very keen about uh, maintaining a good stock of uh, animals so they can a be a good uh, steward of their land their sources of animal and uh, my responsibility as a lodge owner was also to maintain a good life uh, fish stock in a very big Takish Lake. It's about the same size like the Okanagan Lake, but a lot of that area was outside of my uh, jurisdiction. Takish Lake is, can be up to about uh, 900 feet. So I only knew probably the, the top 100 feet, what kind of species of fish and fish behavior. And uh, we had so many different uh, fish species. I had to be very uh, careful about how much I was fishing just for the fun of the fishermen who came across the planet just to go fishing for lake trout and northern pike mm-hmm. and uh, the graylings. So some of them not even liked eating fish and it was part of our diet living off the grid so far away from shopping malls so uh, that brought me into conservation of the of nature the same with uh, with the moose the same with the wolves and bears um, i i would hate to see in my lifetime that any animals that i really enjoyed seeing and uh having encounters uh through like my lifetime that they will be uh uh, disappearing from this planet because of the, the, vor- uh, the concerns that we have now, overpopulation of human beings, our uh, mismanagement of nature and, and on the older sources. So uh, I'm very concerned about what's going on. And through my pictures, I be try to be the ocean ambassador and the steward of the ocean to reflect that w- without being very aggressive, rather than mm. just showing the pictures. And if people have questions, I will give the honest uh, respond. It's not always a nice one, but uh, there's a lot of <laughs> so there's a lot of topics going on that's not in the favor of the human species. But you know, if if you don't want to hear about it, don't ask me. So that's pretty yeah. much my attitude. Yeah, I'm familiar. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was just going to ask you. I'm I'm really curious about your um, the fishing lodge in the Yukon that you, you ran for years. Um, you mentioned that there's lake trout, uh, pike. Um, what was that like as a, as a fly fishing destination in your mind? Was, was it, um, was it somewhere you'd, you'd recommend to, uh, to take a trip? Uh, oh, so absolutely. Yeah. Because, uh, I mean, uh, the lake trouts are usually, uh, caught with downriggers because they're fairly deep. Right. And, also a little bit more uh, picky about vibration in the in the water. So we're talking about lures rather than just uh, insects on the surface. But we have uh, on the side arm of the lake, we had a lot of shallow inlets with a lot of sea grass and seaweed, which was actually heaven for uh, the northern pikes. 
And because the shores were kind of like pebbles and a lot of gravel, it was a good breeding ground for uh, uh, mayfly larvae. Yep. And those will attract uh, a lot of the uh, graylings as well as the juvenile late track. So as, as part of the fun and also be educational to our customers, uh, we always opened uh, the stomach content of any fish that we caught to see what they were feeding on, particularly in that uh, time frame from when the ice goes out until it starts to freeze up again. Right. It was interesting to see that some of the lake trouts, they ate nothing but just yellow jackets. Others were eating flying ants and uh, graylings were not so fussy. They were just uh, eating pretty much everything that was uh, just along the bottom. So, uh, yes, I would say it's certainly a destination for fly fisher. And I had a well-known Canadian journalist uh, up as a guest and he wrote an article about fly fishing possibilities and he said yeah if you if you passionate and you you know where to look for all these fish as a um, capable fly fisher i'm certainly recommend that area mm -hmm. and other affiliated little lakes that you can walk within five minutes uh, to enjoy a fly fishing experience sure how did you get into dog mushing uh, well, we have to turn the wheel back, uh, all the way back to Switzerland. So in 1985, I started to, uh, falling in love with Siberian Huskies as part of my, uh, kind of, I was by myself back then. So I was also working out of my home and my buddy, he said, it's a good thing that you have a companion that takes you out of the office. Otherwise you get up in the morning, have coffee. And then from seven o'clock in the morning, you'll be working until you drop in your bed. And he was totally right. Mm -hmm. And by having a dog, I had to go out every second hour to clear my head from my work and also get outside. And then of course, having a Siberian Husky, it's not a very well uh, house dog. So I bought a second one and then um, I had to actually move to another house because it got a little bit too cramped and the dogs were howling in the night. So I moved to a farmhouse and then I could buy another four or five. And then I got into competitive uh, dog sledding as sprint races, mm -hmm. five to say, uh, 10 miles in Switzerland, Germany, France, northern part of Italy and Austria. So that's kind of was the foundation uh, for the Arctic in the Yukon and Alaska. And then uh, by sheer luck, I still cannot recall why I did it. I found a sponsor who was willing to finance my trip to Alaska to participate in the 1,000-mile race from Whitehorse, Yukon to Fairbanks in Alaska. It's a thousand-mile race. And during that day, period I met my future wife and she was also a very uh, law friend a dog friendly and so we decided uh, let's let's do something crazy buy or build a lodge buy some property in the Yukon and move with our uh, by then eight huskies and that's what we did wow that's you talk about a dream and you talk about <laughs> that's that's not everybody's <laughs> dream they'll be at well, <laughs> that, it, it can be as long as you have dreams and you have the passion. And uh, sometimes you have to just let go of the past and all these securities that you find very important. But mm. at the end, you just kind of live a life 
and say, well, I have a lot of money on my bank account. I have a house and a wife and a car and a dog. But is that what I wanted? And I, I always said no. But I finally had the house. I finally had a wife. I finally had a dog. So it fell in, in place. And uh, I, I, I'm obviously a adventurous born person. So. Right. So how many years did you spend up there? Uh, 16 years. Wow. And now, so Included. the Tagish Wilderness Lodge, like what would the nearest city or, or, or town be to, to the lodge? Oh, there's a little tiny community of 400 people. It's called Tagish at the northern end of the lake. That's where we parked our vehicles and had a boat, a boat launch. Okay. And from there, uh, to go shopping, we had to drive all the way to Whitehorse, which is usually an hour's drive each way. Wow. So those, so I would imagine it, those, those summers are pretty short, like maybe, what, a month, two months, the most? Well, yeah. Well, it's it's a longer springtime and then a short summertime and then kind of a short fall. But usually, you can say it's about six months winter time. So wow, yeah, six maybe sixty days real summer with a lot of uh, warm weather. You actually could uh, jump in the lake for a swim. But we have all these long daylights, mm-hmm. so we got over twenty one hours of daylight. So you could do a lot lot of things in the summertime which you can't do in the winter time. What was your biggest takeaway from all your time spent in the Yukon? 16 years, a fairly uh, secluded area. What would you say you took away from that experience? Um, well, I I learned a lot about myself and my own limits and also kind of the arrangement with, a, with your partner that you never actually spend more than maybe eight hours, nine hours back in Switzerland because we went to work. And and then suddenly you're together with the same person 24-7, 365 days. So that was quite a test for a partnership. And luckily, we both passed. And that kind of taught me to be very respectful with your partner and listen to the partner as well as learning from the land that gives you everything from water from the lake, uh, from plants that you can turn into uh, jam and jelly, and also animals that were given to us as part of the hunting that they took down in BC. So it's uh, also about appreciating life as simple as it can be when you live such an isolated life. It's not about having too much money on the bank rather than live the life in full color and uh, in cinematography size, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, Where that... can you get up in the morning and a grizzly walks through your yard and five minutes later, it's a moose and a caribou. I mean, th- this is priceless. And that's, yeah. that's what kind of uh, formed me in many ways. And now it reflects in my underwater photography and being a steward and a ambassador for the animals. It's kind of, for me, giving back, right? Um, this that's pretty much sums it up. It's it's funny because I've always been told, um, growing up, that you can invest in two things: you can invest in experience, experiences, or you can invest in things. And anytime you choose to invest in that experience, I think that's what photography really does for us. You know what I mean? You're capturing a moment in time that was an experience yeah. and you're relaying that. And, and that's such an important part of conservation because it makes others want to go. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you, you bring pictures. I mean, the old phrase of 
a picture takes uh, speaks a thousand words. That sums it up. I uh, I was into painting for a while, but I didn't find the passion in it, and uh, uh, I I cannot write like my grandfather did. So. I'm coming from a very artistic family, mother's sides, and uh, my form through my brother as well is taking pictures. And I hope I can make more uh, dramatic pictures about what's going on in the ocean without being negative. I mean, there's a lot of negative media going on in pictures. I don't want to be in those shoes. I want to just post the pictures that I'm taking uh, with in mind that um, maybe I have a few educational lines and also when it's coming to conservation that I will mention it without being a, an overdramatic missionary and by, you know, telling people what to do. I, I'm just telling them the stories. And if it catches the people and they say what you're doing is uh, actually encouraging me, that that's already the message I will cross over because that person will go on and will show my pictures and will be the next uh, steward what I'm doing without being aggressive in that matter. We're chatting tonight with Biat J. Corner. Now, Biat is a cinematographer, photographer, diver out of Okanagan Falls, British Columbia. Uh, did own a lodge in the Yukon for years, 16 years. Um, Biat, What's coming up next for you as far as trips? I know you mentioned you just got back to Belize. Um, what's some other waters on your bucket list? Um, I have a small bucket list. Um, uh, the next trip would most likely be somewhere in November because then I'm uh, not so busy in the Okanagan with work. So there's a place just at the end of the Baja California called uh, Cabo de Pulmo. It's not far away from... Cabo San Lucas, and it's known to be one of the advanced marine preserves in Mexico. Uh, it used to be a fishing community of a handful of people. They overfished the area, they ran out of money, and they actually had a proposal to the Mexican government to build a marine preserve. And within five years, not fishing in that area, the population of the uh, fishes came back to uh, pre-fishing uh, uh, numbers. Hmm. So we're talking about uh, uh, bull sharks. Uh, we talk about trevallis, uh, big uh, schools of herring, a lot of sea lions. So these are animals that you can see in large numbers uh, up close in, in that marine yeah. uh, preserve. And living in the western coast of uh, Canada, it's it's uh, only a couple hours flight down to uh, Cabo de San Lucas, and uh, but before that, uh, in February, I'm just gonna hop over hop over to Maui for about 16 days, just to uh, rounding up my winter blues and get ready for the summer. Do you ever get any fly fishing in on these trips, or is it it's mostly diving? Uh, well, it, for me personally, it's always a photography assignment. So mm -hmm. uh, when I went to Belize, I only heard uh, through information that it's actually a good fly fishing place to go. So uh, I would probably down the road when I'm getting closer to semi-retirement, uh, I will be uh, considering com combining both. But basically, uh, 
Another thing that really bothers me lately is along the BC coast is the, the dwindling numbers of fish. So personally, I cut down my own fish consumption by over 90%. Hmm. So, but answering your question, if I go fly fishing, at least then I know I catch my own fish. And I will be proud to eat that fish as well. At yeah. least one of them. The rest can go again if they're healthy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hear you. No, we uh, we do a lot of catch and release when we're out there. In fact, pretty much exclusively. I don't eat a lot of fish. I know that you. Uh, we were talking a while back, and I know you've been busy uh, building some guitars. You gonna have some time to play these guitars over the winter now? Uh, eventually, I will do that. Yeah, between uh, probably over Christmas, New Year. Usually, I practice a little bit more rigs and uh, mule courts. So uh, yeah, I started with that replica of uh, Stratocaster, and now I'm working on the tel- no the other way around, Te- uh, uh, Telecaster first and Stratocaster now. So uh, I got into another passion, like I mentioned earlier. My brother was a good mentor in musician. He never touches a guitar again, and I found my passion in playing music after almost 30 years of uh, abandoning a guitar. And so, yeah, that's another thing that yeah. it's a, it's a musical thing and photography is a visual thing. So it pleases my ear. It pleases my eyes and, <laughs> uh, and also yeah. do wine drinking. So it pleases my palate. So uh, I try to keep it everything <laughs> in balance. Yeah, you do a great job of it. I'm just going to fire a few quick questions at you, Kay, while we're on the music front. Favorite music to listen to on the way to a dive? On the way to a dive? Um, it depends on the country. So in Belize, I listen to a lot of Central American uh, fast-paced music. So uh, when I'm in an airplane, uh, right now I'm practicing some rigs from Dire Straits, Mark Knopfler. So I... I cannot read notes. That doesn't make sense, but I cannot read notes. So, but I, if I listen to a song over and over again, I literally can play it after maybe a month. So, Big, that, biggest lesson you've learned through your diving experience? Um, focus on the fact that you have to maintain your equipment to come back alive when you go diving. Uh, I've seen a lot of dramatical uh, accidents over the course of years that people were uh, neglected with their equipment, so they had issues. And that's very important, and that's what I'm doing also with my uh, photography equipment. I'm maintaining it well, so do I my uh, underwater gear. And uh, that's that's the Swiss part in me. I'm very anal about uh, doing stuff the right way. And then that gives me a higher chance to finish a dive successful so I can enjoy the next one. When you're not in or on the water, you're doing what? Uh, well, I take the camera out of the housing and I take topside pictures. I uh, just recently bought a drone. A photography drone so i want to take some vertical aerial pictures from the top i have a few destinations in mind i also take it to maui and um you know all these passions i'm doing with with the exception of music uh it, it starts to generate mo- money so money is always 
an issue when you're having too many jobs and none of them are paying me uh, $10,000 a month. So it trickles in and it's, it's kind of like uh, an encouragement. So even mm-hmm. through Instagram accounts, a lot of people want to buy these pictures. And I love what I'm doing. It's a passion. It's a, it's a hobby as well. Uh, and I just take the camera out of the housing and just go in the, in, in the wilderness and, and take some aerial uh, area pictures or uh, some landscaping as well. And I'm not doing so much gardening anymore because uh, I, I'm too busy doing all my other hobbies. So right. anywhere from guitar playing to even editing films and, and photography is part of my hobby because then you build together a story, you editing pictures, so you're actually happy with it and the publisher will buy them more likely. And yeah, otherwise I'm never mm. really bored. Most recent book you have read? I was uh, reading the Kindle version of uh, Jacques Cousteau's story, uh, written by his son, Jean-Michel Cousteau, uh, the only remaining survivor of the Cousteau family, uh, first generation. And it's about the life, how Jacques Cousteau got into what he became famous for with his Calypso and the team exploring the world. And uh, he was most likely the biggest influence in photography, cinematography, and diving in my life. I, I can totally see that. That, that. that makes a lot of sense. One, yeah, one, more quick, one more quick fire question for you. Best diving location you have been? Oh, that's a tough one. People ask me that a lot and said, what's, what's your best dive site? And I usually say the next one. <laughs> I like uh, well, they said this because um, I've been to many places. I've been to New Zealand. I've been to Fiji. I've been to some of the Caribbean islands. And they all have their unique uh, habitat environment that I really enjoyed. I never went to a place that I could say, I will never go back to this place again because it was not what I expected. But by nature, I'm not a person with a lot of expectation. I do my home uh, research. Um, I choose the hotel. I choose the dive shop. And I kind of narrowed it down in which area I want to do photography because I have uh, some pictures in my mind that are missing in my portfolio. So Mm. Belize was certainly not on my priority uh, bucket list, but my dive buddies from the neighboring town, they asked me if I want to join them. And I said, oh, well, why not? Because it's the second biggest uh, barrier reef on the planet. So let's check it out. And uh, I was totally impressed uh, with any factor, including dive shops, locations, the weather, the hotel, everything was picture perfect. And uh, so, yeah. That's great. Uh, It's not an easy uh, answer for, for that because even I go love to dive the BC coast. Everything is supersized, very colorful. Mm. You can't dive with orcas or stellar sea lions anywhere else, so might as well do it here on BC, and it's only four hours' drive for me. So uh, I want to thank you so much for taking the time tonight, Biet. But before we let you go, let's get your... Uh, I know that, that one pick in particular you've had so many hits on on Instagram and likes and shares and... Um, where can people see your work at? Uh, the, what's the easiest place to find it? 
The most, uh, the, the easiest way to find my pictures is on Flickr.com. Those are usually the first pictures I upload without uh, cleaning them too much. Just to look, you know, I make uh, travel companions. And that's uh, under my uh, first and last name, Biat J. Corner. As well as on my website, it's uh, bjkphotovideo.com. And I also have an uh, Instagram account, which is also bjk underline photo video. Good stuff. And I know I know a lot of our listeners would be really interested to to look at some of your sockeye picks because that one in particular I've seen I've seen it used a lot of places, yet And I think I mentioned to you, and you're like, "Well, yeah, yeah, people are paying to, to use yeah, it." Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a it's an honor for me to be on your show, and uh, there is always a connection to fly fishing when it comes to uh, no ocean and water and fish. So that's that's my element. So that's uh, hopefully something that can contribute to your good show and uh, I'm, I'm listening to it on a regular basis. Well, thanks again, Biet. Really appreciate it. You have yourself a great night and uh, look forward to uh, hearing about your next trip. Okay, I'll keep you posted. Thanks a lot, Mark. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by theflycrate.com. Thank you for listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Your feedback matters. Let us know if there's a person or topic you'd like discussed. Email us at mark at flyfishing97.com. Until next time, tight lines and we'll see you on the water. Mm-hmm.